Father in heaven, we thank you so much. We've been blessed. Um, blessed by these songs, blessed by the interpretation, uh, blessed by the performance. To what end, though, Lord? Is it, uh, is it just a pleasant sound, or, or is there power? I think there is, Lord. Help us. Help us to wake up and sense the power. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing the series we started last Sabbath from Luke chapter 15, and, and so we had last Sabbath today, and then we're going to spend two more Sabbaths in this chapter, Luke 15, and there's three very famous stories that come out of it that, that you just call them by name and, and people have heard of them. So the, the lost sheep, we know that story, the, the lost coin, maybe the least famous of them all, but then uh, the prodigal son. Uh, we, know, we know these stories, but we don't always remember the context in which they were told. And so one of the things we're doing with this series is making sure we're attending to that context, but at the same time, uh, picking up what we can learn along the way. But, but the context of those stories is actually a complaint. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So we want to try to keep this main point out there as the main point, that, that the good people have taken offense at Jesus' choices of association. But even as we keep that in view, we want to make some side points along the way, and I think some significant points that come, come out of these stories that Jesus tells. But, but remember, it is indignation that has initiated these stories, and, and Jesus' response to their frustration that he's spending time with the wrong people is these three profound stories that are simple in detail, or at least the first two are quite simple in detail, but loaded with implications. So today we're going to look at the second of the stories. And it begins in verse 8, Luke 15, verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, in some ways, of the, the three stories that Jesus tells, I think this is inherently the least offensive of the stories. And I think there's actually two reasons for that, why this story doesn't set us off like maybe the others might. And the, and the first one is, and it probably didn't set the Pharisees off so bad either, the first reason is we all understand the value of lost currency, right? If you happen, maybe we don't really understand what it means to lose a sheep because we're not really shepherds, but, but we understand the value. If you had 10 $100 bills and you misplaced one of them, you likely wouldn't say, oh, well, I still have nine right? You would put the nine somewhere safe and you would sweep the house, right? So we, we inherently get it. The story makes sense. So, so the first point is it's easier for us to understand the action. Now the second point is this. Coins, because we're talking about ten silver coins, coins are inanimate and emotionless and therefore 
they take no offense, right? So, so the nine coins that were not lost are not offended at all that the woman is searching for the tenth, right? They don't care at all. They're coins. What do they care? One of the issues that always gets us with the lost sheep story is that all of us good people naturally identify ourselves with the 99, don't we? And we're always a little ticked off that the shepherd's going to leave us, who are doing what we're supposed to do, to go out there and risk his life and ours to find that one no-good sheep that keeps wandering off. So inherently, that story bothers us on a deep level. Never a party for the good sheep, no. Uh, just a celebration for the wanderer, the end of it. It's, it's troublesome. But the nine coins, well, they, they don't really care if the tenth coin is there or not. They don't know. In fact, the ten coins don't even know there's a woman who owns them. Right? Now, we're going to come back to that in a minute as we reflect on what it means to be a, point, a coin. But, but first, I want to reflect on the larger point here in this story that Jesus tells. So, so the initiator for the story is that Jesus is spending time with sinners and tax collectors. And their frustration is he's not properly attending and appreciating the good people because it's the Pharisees uh, and the teachers of the law that are offended by what he's doing. But now there's another piece in this story, and I don't know if you caught it when I read it, but I want to call your attention to it because I think it's very significant. We have the story, there's, there's one coin missing, she searches for it, and rejoices over it when she finds it. But then the last part of that verse is very striking. It says, So do the angels of God rejoice over one sinner who repents. Now, how much time do you think about, do you spend thinking about, how, what do angels think about? How, what do they do? I, I admit, I don't think about that a lot. But here is an interesting insight that Jesus is giving us, that there are angels around the throne of God, and nothing makes them more excited than a sinner who repents. It's an interesting insight into what they care about, into what they are engaged in, and they celebrate in the presence of the throne of God every time a sinner repents. So now there are many things that we do very well here at the Forest Lake Church. And I, and I think heaven is often, often pleased with us. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's good. I, I think that happens. I think they're, they're pleased. But I do wonder this. Are we investing enough time and energy into the things, or maybe I should say into the thing, that truly makes the angels of God rejoice. Is it one thing for them to be kind of pleased with us, but something else altogether to be the cause of rejoicing? Now, I know this is not an either-or kind of situation, and it's, it's symbolic in, in its own way, but, but let's go down this road. Let's reflect on this a minute. How much of our investment and effort as a people is given for the comfort of the 99, and how much of that is given for the finding of the lost sheep? It's an interesting question to reflect on, isn't it? How much focus do we put on securing the nine coins that are safe, 
yet fail to invest the effort to search for the one that's missing. There's an interesting truth about us, the the Forest Lake Church. We're a very large church. This is our third service, and this is this service has more people in it than, than the other two services had. But, but just a truth, um, even our first service, just the ones gathered in our first service, there were more people in that one service than, than probably the majority of the Adventist churches around the world that met this morning. There were probably more in that one service than in most of the places where Adventists are getting together. And if you put them all together, it's a very large group. But size alone does not automatically mean that we are effective at helping lost coins or lost sheep to be secured, right? Now, in any church, there's eras. There's eras of effectiveness. And and as I was reflecting on this in the the recent history of this church over the last 20, 25 years or so, it, it came to my mind that there were at least a couple eras of effectiveness that was taking place here. And one of them goes back to the time when Pastor Terry Pooler was here. And, and he, with the leadership of the church and the, and the lay leadership of the church, came up with this slogan, Forest Lake Church, where hope is born. And this was a very powerful slogan for its time. Because at the time, the leaders of this church became aware of the fact that there were an awful lot of, of lost sheep around this church. Uh, people who had grown up Seventh-day Adventists, but for one, one reason or another, had, had reached a point of estrangement from the church. And they made a deliberate effort within this context where hope is born to, to bring those lost sheep back to fellowship. And it was very effective, and a lot came back. And it was during that time that a lot of things were set in motion that we're still experiencing today. One of those things being uh, diversifying what we were doing with the services in an effort to engage with different communities. So this all took place when Pastor Terry Pooler was here, and I think it was a very effective time of, of finding and gathering lost sheep. Now, around 10 years ago or so was in the middle of the time when Pastor Derek was here. And it was a very effective time when he was here for people making decisions for Christ, both here but also around the world. As the, as the internet ministry of the church got going, as we began to live stream services um, and, and DVDs were sent in those days, there was a, a very active DVD program that if you were here during that time, you'll remember that there was a big uh, chest that was set right here in the front of the church, right? Do you remember this? And each, each Sabbath, there were envelopes in there with DVDs in them that people from around the world had requested. And you all participated in this ministry. You would come forward, you would take one of those envelopes, you would put the postage on it, and you would send it out. It was an effective season where many people came to believe in Christ. But now I want to ask you an interesting question, and it's been fascinating at the other two services as well. So, so we're all gathered here, and the majority of you are, are baptized members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So I want to ask you a question. How many of you were baptized in this very church? Okay, or, or associated with it. You could have been in a lake or something, but it was, it was associated first. So you were, when you were baptized, the first church you were a member of was the Forest Lake Church. Can I see your hands? I'm only raising my hand as an example. All right, hold them up high. It's good to see a couple MD boys there. Good job, gentlemen. Way to be around here forever. All right. So look around you. Okay, there's some, right? 
It's not half, is it? It's not even a fourth, is it? It's probably not even a tenth. So what's the point of that? Well, the the point of it is this church isn't big because there was some brilliant evangelism plan that got put in place and a whole bunch of you came to believe because of here. This church is big because a whole bunch of you already believed and you found in this community a home and came here from wherever you came here from. Now, that's not good or bad. It just is. And who's to say you might have been lost coins or lost sheep or even prodigals before you came back here. But it does make the point well enough that most of us came here from somewhere else. I want to suggest to you, for your consideration that we have for the past several years, been in a season of internal reconstruction and deepening alongside generational and cultural transformation within this community. There's been a spiritual deepening in many lives, demonstrated, I believe, by the amazing growth of our Sabbath schools and the growing awareness of the importance of small group interaction within the church. So 10 years ago, in terms of numbers, there were a lot more people sitting in the sanctuary on any given Sabbath. But... Ten years ago, there were less people participating in our Sabbath schools than there are today. Isn't that interesting? Less people in the sanctuary, but more people participating in those groups where I believe the deepest level of of spiritual growth and development can take place even beyond what can happen in this room. So there's been a deepening and a strengthening within the core of this community. Now, there have also been continuing changes in congregational leadership. When I arrived here in the year 2011, all of the what we would call key congregational leaders, the lay leadership of the church, every single one of them was older than me when I got here. So here we are, seven and a half years later, there's only one or two that are older than me now. All the rest are younger than me. That's a significant generational transformation that has been taking place within this community over the last few years. So let's go a step further. The staff of this church. This church has been blessed to have a number of people on the staff that were here for a really long time, an abnormally long time. And if Pastor Barbara continues to make good on her threat to retire at the end of this calendar year and we can't figure out any way to blackmail her out of it, which we haven't been able to so far. It's kind of like Daniel. You just can't find anything she does wrong. But anyway, so if she makes good on her threat of retirement at the end of this year, that will mean that at the start of next year, only Pastor Roger, where is he? There he is, Pastor Roger, visiting us at third service, usually at first. Pastor Roger and Pastor Mark will be the only staff members still here from the time I arrived. That's a big change, isn't it? That's a big transformation. There's another transformation that's been going on. Over these last 10 years, this congregation has become far more culturally diverse than we've ever been. 
And that shift in the congregational makeup is beginning to manifest itself in leadership of the church, primarily at this point, in the areas associated with children's ministries. Not only that, we've launched our Remarkable Building Project, which by the fall of this year will revolutionize our capacity for children's ministry and open the way for far more interacting and fellowship opportunities in our enhanced lobby. But what is the ultimate purpose of it? Is it just to make the 99 more comfortable? Are we, are we just putting in a, a velvet lining on the box in which the nine unlost coins rest? Or is there more to it? Well, I'm going to leave you with those questions today because, because it's not time to answer them yet. And also in part because the answer is, to a large extent, up to you. Now, this is part two of a, a four-part series. And, and really, it's not really right to call it a four-part series. What this is, is really, it's just one really long sermon. But you just have to break it up into four weeks because nobody can handle it all at once. And so there's little points from last week that have to be suspended. And from this week, questions that have to be suspended that we can't answer until we get to the last part. When you understand better why it really is up to you. For today, it's going to have to be enough to ask the questions in order to get us thinking about our future. Something we'd better do because just based on some of these things I've read to you, the future's here. We're not who we were 10 years ago. So we better figure out who we are now. But having said that, I want to transition now at this point and spend a few minutes considering lost coins. For that's the illustration Jesus uses here. And while this next part isn't primarily what Jesus is addressing, he's not specifically telling this story to say, lost people are like lost coins. That's, that's not what he's saying in the story. However, I think we can take the concept he's using and connect it with some other verses. And there's some learning for us that I think is valuable in this idea of lost coins. So, so alert to you lost coins out there today. Today is your wake-up call. Now, you miss that because you're a lost coin and you don't have any idea what's going on around you. But maybe by the end you'll understand what I mean. Luke 15, verse 8, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Now, there's two questions I want us to think about that I think will help us get into, into this, uh, this symbol of the lost coin. So the first one is this, where is the lost coin? Were you listening carefully when I read it? Do I need to read it to you again? Let me, let me read it to you again. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Where is the coin? It's in the house. She doesn't go outside and look for it. It's not outside. It's like the, the story of the guy who lost his keys, and he's, it's night, and he's looking underneath the street lamp. And the guy's like, what are you doing? I'm looking for my lost keys. He said, well, where'd you lose them? Well, I lost them over there. He said, well, why are you looking here? Well, there's light here. So it's, no, it's not that situation. 
The coin is lost in the house. That's different than the lost sheep, isn't it? Lost sheep is out on a mountain somewhere, or stuck in a ravine, or somewhere crazy. Lost coins don't tend to wander. They're still in the house. Okay, so that's the first point. Second point, does the lost coin know it's lost? No. It's just as happy underneath the couch as it is in your purse, right? No clue. Again, contrast the lost sheep. The lost sheep absolutely knows he or she is lost, but knows, has no idea what to do about it. But the lost coin is so clueless, he can be sitting in the house and have no idea he's lost. Lost sheep, well, they're careless. They're unwise. Not necessarily hostile. We'll get to hostile next week. She just wandered off. Now, do you remember what we told the lost sheep last week? What did we tell the lost sheep to do? What was it? Get a fence. Get a fence. See, if you're a sheep and you have this problem of wandering off, you're probably not going to get over that. So you need to build yourself a barrier to keep yourself in the pasture, all right? And we talked about that. We talked about how we all have different barriers we need in our life. And there's no such thing as the perfect fence that works for everybody because there are weaknesses I have that you don't have. You don't need a fence where I do. There are weaknesses you have that I don't have. I don't need a fence where you do. If we put up one single fence on everybody, we call that boarding academy, right? Yeah. (laughs) You remember that? Yeah. We don't really do that anymore, but college isn't quite so much, but yeah. That's where you try to put one fence on everybody, and and 90% of the rules are like, this is ridiculous. But that's because 10% of them are going to go do that, so that's that's why you do that. But there, there isn't that perfect fence. We all have to work out our salvation with God to understand where our boundaries have to be. All right, so that was last Sabbath. The lost sheep knows he's lost, but he doesn't know how to get home. Therefore, someone has to go find him and bring him back. Now, let's consider the lost coin. He may not have even left the house, but then that's the point. The lost coin is so clueless, he doesn't know if he's lost or found. So to you lost coins out there, I said to the lost sheep, get a fence. To you lost coins out there, I say to you, get a clue. All right, get a clue. Do you even understand at all what is going on around you? Now, when I think about lost coins, there's a text that comes to my mind. And and I don't think this whole text necessarily applies to the whole group. So you might hear this and you think, well, that's not really me. But the end part really does. And I'm just, I'm going to read you the whole thing so you have it in context. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then he takes a breath in verse 5, and this is the key part right here having a form of godliness, 
but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people. Now again, I'm not sure all of that applies to all the lost coins, but that last part, verse 5, I think very powerfully captures the reality of the lost coin. The lost coin hangs around church their whole life and fits in reasonably well with the culture and all, but in truth, never really understand that church is more than culture. Church is more than music. Church is more than a well-dressed crowd of like-minded individual coins or or a dressed-down crowd of like-minded individual coins. It doesn't matter what you prefer here, right? You see this point. Church is more than that. Now, here's the thing about lost coins. As soon as uh, they no longer feel like they fit with the other coins, they have a tendency to drift to a place where they fit. They don't really look around and see people and say, these are the people I love. They look around and see forms and culture and say, this is the culture I love or this is no longer the culture I love. There's a difference there, isn't there? They have a form of godliness, but they never realize, as Paul says, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 20, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Okay, now I want you to think about church. When you think about church, do you think, well, it's mostly a matter of talk? Okay, well, yeah, we do a lot of talking, don't we? But if the only thing we're doing here is talking, let's shut it down. We're wasting our time. The talking is supposed to lead to the power of God manifest in the people of God. The church is not about form and function and and the perfecting of both. Now, does church have to have form? Yes. Does it have to have function? Yes. But the primary purpose is not form and function and the perfecting of both. This is a task that lost coins love to pour themselves into, particularly when it's others they're perfecting. As if perfect form and function are what causes the angels of God to celebrate before the throne. Now, the choir had to do a lot of work on form and function. And you can see in the way they're directed, and I watched you all in practice a little bit as you talked about specific consonants that are difficult and and specific things that have to get out. But, But the end purpose was not so that they would all pronounce D properly at the right time. The end purpose was so that you would feel the power of God. So there's a place for form and function, but only to the end that it brings forth the power of God in the life of the church. The kingdom of God is about power. The power of God made manifest through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and bestowed upon all believers through the Holy Spirit, resulting in a people who love the Lord their God with all their heart, their mind, their soul, and their strength, and who love their neighbors as themselves. That's the power of God manifest in the people. It is a very provocative power. And it is a very emotive power. It doesn't say the church is made up of those who have agreed in their minds in principle that God is God. 
No, it's the ones who love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Does that leave anything out? I don't think so. And this power is a power that rejects our attempts to corral and control it, like a wind whose origin and direction we cannot determine, but whose effects we clearly see and feel. What the lost coin misses is that it isn't the humanity of the church that makes us great. It's the presence of God within the people of the church that makes it great. It's not just that we're a bunch of awesome people in this room. It's that the Spirit of God lives in us. That's what makes it great. And so to the lost coins, I give you this warning. Get a clue. You may think you're safe because you're in the house, but when you are clueless, you don't have to wander outside in order to get lost. People around you might be having an unbelievably powerful experience of faith in God and love while you're sitting there thinking, well, I felt like they got a little pitchy at the end of that one. You see the difference? How can you be so close to power and wonder and be missing it all? It would be like going to the Grand Canyon and looking the wrong direction. Looks like a parking lot to me. (laughs) Now, I am in truth, I confessed this last Sabbath, I am in truth more of a lost sheep. But that doesn't mean I don't have lost coin tendencies. I'm kind of multilingual in this lost stuff. There's been a lot I've had to learn along this road. And the Lord has taken me down a path and taught me things I never wanted to learn. Has that ever happened to you? So the very first church, after I got out of seminary, the very first church where I was associate pastor and assigned was Community Praise Center in Alexandria, Virginia. Now, you're probably not familiar with Community Praise Center in Alexandria, Virginia. It was an amazing time there. It was just at the beginning of the time when Pastor Henry Wright was leading that church. He's one of the, one of the most powerful speakers our church has ever produced. Amazing speaker. Now, something else you probably don't know about Community Praise Center was that it was 99.9% uh, composed of people whose primary ancestry is from Africa, not Europe. Okay, now, uh, originally I would have said it was an African-American church, but once I was there, I got schooled on that because uh, 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 Dr. Wright sat me down and he said, okay, so, so he, he took me through the list. He said, okay, that's American black, that's a, a Caribbean black, they're from Africa. They're... I said, wow, I didn't even know. There's, there's arguments out there I didn't even know were going on. We make assumptions, don't we? about culture and people and, and expressions. And so I'm in this church, and, and, and there were things, you know, I, I, I don't know. I wasn't used to that. I, is that okay? Are we allowed to do that at church? I don't know. I had to learn. What I couldn't deny was there was power in that church. And there was transformation in people's lives, including mine. 
So after that, then we, we planted a church. It was called Northern Virginia Christian Fellowship. And this taught me the danger of cultural expectations. So we had this small group that was meeting in our home. And there were people from CPC that were there. And, and then there were some people from Fairfax Church and a whole bunch of other churches around. An extremely multicultural group. And we were, we'd been a small group together for over a year. We were absolutely locked in in purpose, absolutely locked in in mission, absolutely locked in in our philosophies of how things ought to go. We were so excited about our first Sabbath. We got ourselves together. We had our first church service, and practically everyone went home saying, eh, that wasn't really what I expected. The cultural baggage we have placed on the worship service is almost overwhelming. If we don't get the form right, people go home and said, eh, church was lousy. It took us over three months to come up with an expression of worship that we could all be at peace with. And eventually we came to love it. But it taught me that our preference for form can be stronger than our commitment to purpose and mission. And that's hard in a church where we have different services that do different things, isn't it? After that, then, then I moved to, Alicia and I went to Yakima, Washington, to another church plant called Connections. And I thought, well, Yakima, <laughs> you know, what's the worst thing that can happen, right? So I went out there. Those people terrified me. <laughs> they were so spiritual, I had no idea what to do with it was just crazy. So we had this one guy, he was one of the elders, and, uh, and, and we would have elders meetings at his house, and so I'd, I'd come to the elders meeting, and, and we'd come in, and the very first thing he would do is walk over to his stereo and, and put on a worship song and turn it up really loud, and then we'd spend 10 minutes, you know, and I'm kind of peeking around. <laughs> do we do this the whole time? You know, trying to stay with it. Here they are around me having this incredibly powerful worship experience, and I'm just all uncomfortable. I don't have any idea how do we do this. You know, after a while, I figured it out, got into it. It was just really good. But I had to let it happen. It was different. It just didn't align with my default religious rationalism. Here's a little clue that, that you may have lost coin tendencies. Sometimes when people around you are having an intense spiritual experience, you roll your eyes. Okay? You may very well be standing next to a Holy Spirit outpouring, and it's like, oh, that's so dumb. That's not good. That's not good. We went from there to Marietta, and I was moved when we were there because there were, there were some lost coins in that congregation that woke up and became powerful. It's amazing to see what a lost coin can do when it figures out its value. Now, all of that is, is just what it is. There's been another school I've been in for 30 years. It's called Married to Alicia. And then another 22 years where I came to realize it wasn't just a fluke because then Gable came along. Two people in my life whose intrinsic understanding of relationship with Jesus begins beyond the point mine has even reached. Do you have those people in your life? They just get it. 
You know, and I'm like, well, no, how can, we haven't figured it all out. It's like, why would we figure it out? We have the Spirit. He leads us. I, I wrestle with that. But I witness it too. So here's, here's what I want to say. Sometimes I worry more about lost coins than I do about lost sheep because at least lost sheep know they're in danger. Lost coins, not so much. And that is why I say, get a clue. We might not even be able to pick you out if you're really good at covering your eye roll. We won't know. Enough of your form of godliness that denies the power of God. To me, the core problem with the lost coin is this. You don't actually know what gives value, either to you or to the church. You think you are valuable due to your inherent qualities as a precious metal. Okay, there's some value in that. A, a, a coin is made up of, of precious metals of sorts. There's, there's a value there. Okay, I'll grant that. But the way this plays out in the life of a lost coin within a church is that they're very careful to pay attention to the externals of the faith, trying to make sure they always look right and always act right according to their understanding. And it plays out in the concept of church. Church must properly align with what you have come to know as right and proper and appropriate. But what I want to suggest to the lost coins is that value is not primarily contained within your material substance. Certainly there's a value to every human life, but our human life alone in its fallen state is but a shadow of the potential value we have in Christ. And the primary value of the church is not contained in its buildings and in its forms and in its functions and in its programs, no matter how polished and perfect they may be. So where does the true value of a lost coin lie? A coin is nothing more than a round piece of metal until it bears the imprint that gives it value. Right? When they make coins, they, they take a big old sheet of metal and they punch out this round thing and it's, it's not worth much until they stamp something on it, right? So what are the implications? A Christian is just a human with a lot of rules until she bears the imprint of God or until he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Just as a coin's value is dependent upon whose stamp it bears, so is every human's truest value established. It is the stamp of King Jesus upon your life that gives you your greatest value. It's not the rituals you keep. It's not the perfection of the culture you embrace. It's not the determination with which you keep rules and persecute rule breakers. Something amazing happens when we bear the stamp of Jesus, when the lost coins get a clue. Amazing things happen. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 20. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will come, and the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going, 
And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat Him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. The world is full of people desperate to believe that there is a God, but also desperately lacking any examples of someone or a people in whom the power of God is present. And I believe that this prophecy of Zechariah would be fulfilled in our day if the power of God were truly at work and alive in us, that there would continually be people coming and saying, can I come to your church? I've heard the power of God is with you. When the lost coins wake up and realize it is the stamp of God that they wear, when they have more than just a form of godliness, but truly have Christ living in them, then it will be true what is said, Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. God is calling us to so much more than form. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It's about power. So wake up. Lost coins, get a clue. You bear the stamp of the King of Kings. Go out and start living like it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, place your mark upon us today. There's some inherent value in us as just round pieces of silver. But our true value comes when the stamp of Jesus is placed upon our lives. And when the mark of the King of Kings is clear within our community. Lord, help us to wake up. Startle the lost coins who think it's all about form and function and have never realized the power of God. Move with your Holy Spirit. Be provocative. Be emotive. But most of all, be powerful in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.